Hey everyone, it's Ramon and welcome to the Human Optimization Podcast, science-based tools to optimize your physiology, master your mind, and unlock your potential. Now before we get into the episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Brain First, earth-grown, evidence-based nutrition. One of the products that I love and I take every workday to fire up my brain and get laser-like focus and interflow quickly is Genius Mode. Now, it took me years of research and testing to formulate Genius Mode for Brain First because I was sick of having dozens of bottles and powders to have to mix together all the different ingredients to give me the effect that I wanted. So Genius Mode has the best science-backed ingredients for peak mental performance in meaningful doses supported by experimental data. I personally take it shortly after I wake up and the focus and the drive and the motivation and the mental clarity lasts me all day. Now to get Genius Mode, use code RAMON for 10% off in addition to any other subscription discounts that you get on the BrainFirst website. Just head to mybrainfirst.com and you'll see a bunch of reviews from other people who are absolutely loving this product. mybrainfirst.com, code RAMON for 10% off and get your brain an instant upgrade. Let's get into the episode. Enjoy, my friends. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Emeron Mayer. Uh, Emeron is a medical doctor and a distinguished professor in the departments of medicine, physiology, and psychiatry at the School of Medicine at UCLA, executive director of the G. Oppenheimer Center for Neurobiology of Stress and Resilience, and co-director of the Cure Digestive Diseases Research Center at UCLA. He's a world-renowned gastroenterologist and neuroscientist with 35 years of experience in the study of clinical and neurobiological aspects of how the digestive system and the nervous system interact in health and disease. And he is also the author of the bestseller, The Mind-Gut Connection, how the hidden conversation within our bodies impacts our mood, our choices, and our overall health. Emeron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Vermont, for the kind introduction, and I'm glad to be um, talking to you. Um, great to speak with you and, and great to see you again. So I think uh, uh, for our listeners, first of all, uh, how did you become interested in the gut and in particular the, the, that mind-gut connection? Yeah, so the mind-gut connection, uh, I mean, the gut came um, as a second choice. Uh, the mind-gut connection or the mind-body connection is something I've always been fascinated about. And even in college, um, and it was ultimately the interest that got me to medical school, so the primary driving force. And in medical school, I picked um, uh, mind-brain-heart uh, interaction as the topic of my thesis. Uh, and then while doing clinical rotations, um, during my medical school time, I just, so, so to say, fell in love with gastroenterology, was the most clinically the most interesting topic or subspecialty. And then I dropped the heart and adopted the gut. And ever since, you know, the last 35 years, I've sort of been pursuing this topic, and um, which was initially just the mind, the brain, and the gut, and now is the brain, gut, and the microbiome, how they communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you're currently conducting research uh, in this area? Yeah, we, I have a, an, an active uh, research program within the Oppenheimer Center for Neurobiology of Stress and Resilience. 
initially this was all focused on the gut on um, mainly on a disorder a common disorder uh, called irritable bowel syndrome or IBS because that sort of was sort of the most obvious area where this plays a role but in the meantime we've really expanded this concept to several other areas uh, in which the brain, uh, a disturbance of brain gut microbiome interactions has been implicated in our case particularly in inflammatory bowel disease. So we're interested how the mind influences the, the clinical course of that uh, devastating disease. We're interested in uh, autism spectrum disorders, um, group of disorders that also has gastrointestinal symptoms in many patients. Um, and we, there were two other areas that we, we now have grant funding in. One is um, ingestive behavior, so basically what drives us to eat and what goes wrong if somebody develops a disorder called um, uh, food addiction. And the last one was surprising. Um, it has to do with, with cognitive decline and, and Alzheimer's disease. So there's, there's animal models that have suggested the microbes play a role in this, you know, playing a role in neuroinflammation of the brain and neurodegeneration. And so now we're looking, we're part of a big NIH-funded consortium, and we're looking at this role of molecules produced by the microbes on the brain and on brain function, cognitive function, and uh, yeah, overall brain function. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Uh, and I think uh, I'd love to dive into some of these a little bit more. Uh, but before we do, what are some of the basics that, uh, for our listeners, maybe they've heard that, uh, you know, the gut is the, is the second brain. Maybe they've um, heard or, or read some of the stuff that's out there in the in the pop neuroscience world and pop psychology world. What are some of the basics that we need to know about the gut brain, how they interact so that we can uh, better understand uh, some of the, the topics that we're going to be diving into and some of the things that you just mentioned yeah, I personally think the most um, fundamental um, argument for this close connection between the gut and the brain is really from an evolutionary standpoint that some of the first um, animals essentially were floating digestive tubes um, in the oceans. And these are not just little tiny floating tubes, but they also had a nerve net surrounding them, wrapped around them. And this nerve net essentially controlled the contractions and the movements of these of these little organisms. Um, so they were the precursors of peristalsis and uh, uh, transit uh, motility through. Um, so there was an opening where these or, these organisms took up food from the water, and then there was uh, the opposite end where they expelled waste materials. So this arrangement, if you take a, a micrograph of an of one of these organisms and compare it to the gut of the human gut or animal gut, it's been maintained in a remarkable, uh, consistent way. So the nerve nets are now the second brain of the gut or the um, scientific name, the enteric nervous system. But they're still doing exactly the same thing. They control peristalsis and contractions and motility. Um, and um, not only has that happened, but it's um, 
as evolution went on to develop polar animals that had a head, basically. So these tubes didn't really have a head. Uh, <clears throat> the design was somewhat altered now. There's, there's these nerve nets, or out of these nerve nets, a, a central nervous system was created that was placed in the head. And there was a division of labor that um, the central nervous system essentially coordinated um, anything going on in the environment um, with the behavior of the animal and the, um, the original nerve nets, the enteric nervous system regulated the parasolsis and gut function. And again, I mean, this design has been maintained uh, all the way up to now. You know, it's almost virtually every animal, um, including insects and, um, um, yeah, you know, any simple insect has um, an enteric nervous system and has um, a central nervous system in, in the head. And the two of them interact closely. But the, the second um, brain in the gut, which is really the first brain when you think about it in evolutionary terms, mm -hmm. can pretty much autonomically uh, or um, um, autonomously regulate gut function. It doesn't need the big brain. Um, the big brain comes in if there's some existential threat to the organism then the big brain takes over the gut function. But the gut is essentially regulated by its own, by its own nervous system, um, and it talks a lot to the, to the big brain. So that's the interesting thing. Most conversation, most interactions between the two brains goes from the gut to the brain, not the other way around. Of course, having essentially you know, two nervous systems makes this thing far more uh, complex than the the original, uh, let's call it design, right? Uh, so one, what are some of the things that will directly impact how the gut communicates to the brain and alters our experience? Maybe it's uh, how the gut influences things like um, the way we process stress or anxiety, these sorts of things. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, so there's multiple communication uh, channels between the gut and the brain. I mean, one, um, an important one is uh, the vagus nerve. So that, you know, complex nerve that has both a sensory and a motor component to it. The, the sensory component is much bigger for the gut than the motor component. And um, it sends pretty much all the information that, like, whatever goes on in the gut is first transduced the specialized cells in the gut wall, in the lining of the gut. They contain hormones and chemical messengers which are being released in response to what goes on in the gut. So if there's inflammation, if any kind of food intake will stimulate these cells to release the contents. And these cells are innovated with synaptic contents, uh, contacts by the vagus nerve. So whatever happens in these cells, the brain will know because the vagus will transmit that information. So the, the best known example is really what happens with food intake. If our gut is empty, there is, um, this mechanism exists in the stomach uh, and there's a particular molecule called ghrelin, um, which is released and it's the only one that actually stimulates appetite and activates the 
a motivational system in the brain to seek food intake. Uh, all the other ones downstream are um, actually inhibitory. They, they turn off our appetite and our drive to ingest food when food gets down there. So when food gets into the small intestine, stimulates these cells that contain what's called satiety hormones, which then also act on the vagus nerve, and that signal gets back to the brain and makes us feel full and satiated and ultimately stop eating if we don't have a condition like, like food addiction where this mechanism does not work. Um, so that's for the best known um, uh, mechanism. There's another cell type, which are these the serotonin-containing cells. Um, that has received a lot of attention because you know, more than 95% of the body's serotonin is located in the gut. We still don't know why there is so much because, you know, the little serotonin we have in the brain has a huge influence on most of our vital functions from sleep to appetite to well-being uh, to pain sensitivity. So why there's only so little of that transmitter in the brain where it regulates essentially who we are um, and 95% in the gut well, the only thing it needs to regulate is really the contractions and the peristalsis. So there are now thoughts based on evidence that has come from the microbiome research that these cells play a big role as interface between um, microbial signals and, uh, and, and the brain. So microbial signals such as short-chain fatty acids or secondary bile acids or um, in, um, you know, tryptophan metabolites, they all can, they all can activate these uh, serotonin factories to increase production. And then that serotonin will activate the vagus nerve because they're also synaptically innovated. And that's a signal that then can influence, you know, brain function indirectly. So we have a direct serotonin modulation at the brain level and an indirect one that goes through these serotonin cells in the vagus nerve. We don't know in humans, or, or I mean, let me put it the other way, in, in animal studies where you can cut the vagus nerve and see what happens, um, there's a lot of evidence now that it plays an important role in many of these microbial um, functions and activities. In humans, obviously, we can't do that. Um, when I was in medical training, um, a vagotomy was the main first-line treatment for peptic ulcer disease, but that no longer happens today. So we, we can't really do these experiments to know what role it plays in, in humans. But I do remember it, it was a well-known phenomenon that many people after these vagotomies, um, so the ulcer was treated successfully, it didn't come back. Um, but they had major personality changes or changes in their energy level. They were fatigued. They had all, all kinds of strange symptoms that at the time we couldn't really understand why. So now today I think we know, you know, we took, um, took away a main regulatory uh, gut-brain signaling mechanism. Mm. So it has a, a direct effect on, uh, and I think we spoke about this, uh, last time and I remember you saying that it may not have a the the microbes may not have a direct effect 
moment to moment, but perhaps over a longer period of time, can impact things like uh, how we feel, um, depression, these sorts of things, right? Yeah, and um, so I, I mean, I think well, there is you know there is the whole concept of gut feeling, something that you yeah. um, sense immediately. But honestly, I'm I'm not sure if the microbes play a big role in this, or if this is just something. I mean, like in my book, I sort of speculated that this is something um, of a supercomputer that we develop um, during our development, and where a lot of emotional moments with gut feelings are stored, and then at a time of decision making, we can just access this in a non-linear way and make a decision. Um, but but I think you know from a disease standpoint, the probably some of the most important um, um, phenomena that are going on is is the the chronic signaling if it's biased in one way or the other, either through the vagus nerve or through immune molecules that change change the brain, like create neuroinflammation and neurodegeneration. Um, there's some evidence for that, you know, in 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 Parkinson's disease, where the vagus nerve um, is first um, affected in this disease process, like 20 years before um, any neurological symptoms arise, and we know that the the abnormality travels up the vagus nerve and ultimately reaches the brainstem and and higher cortical areas. So, I I, I think we're in terms of human studies. Um, we're still at the beginning of this uh, exciting journey, um, but we can speculate a lot of things that this is a crucial part of our uh, of our health. And uh, you know, if something goes wrong in our diseases, some of our chronic diseases. Mm-hmm. I want to talk briefly about uh, um, uh, firmacutes or firmacutes and uh, bacteroidetes. The the a couple of t- different types of gut bacteria. There was a, a study, I think it was about three years ago, that showed that the ratio of these are important uh, and actually potentially a causal factor in the development of obesity, uh, which suggests that, or the, the study suggested that it's better to have less of the firmicutes and an increase in the bacteroidetes, which again has been suggested that we can alter through things like um, diet. Uh, what are your um, thoughts on this? And are there, uh, are there any other things that these types of bacteria have a direct impact on other than what was suggested in this study in terms of the development of uh, obesity? <clears throat> yeah, so um, sort of step back a little bit. So with obesity, with... Um, you know, food intake that's not optimal, like typical Western food intake, the, the gut microbiome is an incredibly adaptive system. So it, it will adapt to what you feed it, just like any, you know, a garden or uh, a farm. And um, so if you look over time or at societies like the hunter-gatherer um, society, the remnants of these societies around the world, they, they all have um, this higher bacteroidetes from acute uh, ratio, they all are in a similar type of diet, you know, which is much more plant-based, has a lot more fiber, less 
animal fat, um, no sugar. So you could just say that when you look at the the microbes in the gut, it's simply an adaptation to what goes on in their environment and what we feed them. I, I think that I mean, there's other factors besides uh, diet. Obviously, there's, there's chemicals, there's um, antibiotics, but but diet probably in in, in this in this particular area plays plays a big role. And um, but the microbes themselves, so these these taxa, you know, it's a, it's a very high level uh, taxonomy that Firmicutes and the Bacteroidetes. If you go lower. Um, um, into the species and uh, strains, it it sort of widens tremendously. So, you, saying something at the at this high level of firmicutes and bacteroidetes, it it means something. It shows you that something is influ influenced by the diet, but it doesn't really tell you exactly what happens, because ultimately it's the molecules <clears throat> that these that these bacteria produce that interact with us and that stimulate, you know, either appetite or um, inflammation. And um, so, yeah, these, these studies about the ratio of these two taxa was kind of the beginning. In the meantime, you know, we can sequence the microbiome much deeper down to the strain level. We can do what's called metagenomics, will we'll be um, analyze the whole collective genome that the microbes make up and then um, and then determine what these genes can do, what molecules or what pathways they, they're involved in. Uh, we can look at metabolites, so-called metabolomics. And those are really, if, if you look at the state of the art in this field, that's where we are now. You know, we're into function, no longer the, the populations. And the reason this is important is... Um, so if, if, if you take um, 10 individuals and you look at their, their microbial composition, the relative abundances, they, they all vary from each other. Everybody varies from each other. Um, it's only about 10% that's common to those, to those individuals. But when you look at what they produce, their, 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 their gene content or the metabolites they produce, they're actually very similar. So different people create similar chemical messengers uh, by different uh, populations of, of, of bacteria. You know? So I, that's why people have become careful of putting too much emphasis on things like on this taxonomy, on the high level taxonomy. Um, so you're saying that, that it, it's really a, a too simplistic model to apply and then go out and start saying, hey, all we need to do is, is um, increase the bacteroidetes, decrease the firmicutes, everything's going to be great, which is what you see in a lot of these pop articles, right? Which is, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, what we're talking about prior to this show, this, this, um, this oversimplification, which leads to some sort of intervention, um, at least in the, the sort of pop world. Um, that probably leads to also the development of uh, certain products and supplements. I'm thinking of the whole, uh, you've got the group of people that, that dump a whole bunch of probiotics into their body and, and then you've got the other group of people that are now 
no, no, it's just about the the prebiotics or the mm-hmm. the mod biotics and and concentrated polyphenols and um, but maybe maybe we could explore some of those ideas as well the the sort of probiotic versus the prebiotic mod biotic um, I'm thinking of you know concentrated polyphenols and and glucans and maybe even some lectins and the impact that that has on on the gut bacteria. Yeah, so I personally I'm not a fan of either the pro or the prebiotics as a major um, intervention that can make a big difference. From <clears throat> from the the probiotics, many studies, you know, um, there's, yeah, there's hundreds of studies. There's a small number of studies that are well controlled uh, that I would really trust, and there's a growing number of meta-analyses that that phenomenon usually happens if the individual studies are not good enough, um, not large enough, not controlled enough to say anything. So then people start doing meta-analyses. And it seems to me that um, in these meta-analyses, you find a small beneficial effect on a whole range of conditions, you know, from um, from IBS, uh, irritable bowel syndrome symptoms to uh, inflammatory conditions, um, but they're really small. You know, they're about 10% and you don't see them in all the studies, just in a subset of them. So it's definitely not harmful, even though, you know, there was a recent study out of the Weizmann Institute that, um, that demonstrated in their model that um, the, the intake of probiotics after a course of antibiotics where you knock down you know, many of your natural microbes, that a course of probiotics can actually delay the reestablishment of, a normal, of your normal microbiome. That has been heavily criticized, that study, even though I mean, the quality of the study is pretty high, I would say. Um, and, um, but in general, there's, there's, there's no negative effects. And um, ultimately, <clears throat> I, I think the idea of ingesting microbes from the external uh, environment. So we always ingest microbes. If you eat an apple, there's uh, billions of microbes on that apple. There have been studies on the skin of the apple. And even if you open it up on the, the apple core, there's, there's literally billions, and apples are not the only ones. So unless you only eat things that have been, um, you know, that have been treated before or have chemicals on them, uh, you, you will always ingest a significant amount of microbes throughout the day. Um, so people have not really looked at that at all, you know, what, what beneficial that effect this has. On the other hand, there's countries like uh, Asian countries like Japan and Korea where fermented foods, uh, a, a significant variety of fermented foods are a staple. Um, and when I was in Korea, I kept asking people, at what age uh, do you actually give this fermented food to your children? And they say from infancy, from infancy on. And the, the whole idea is that if you have a, an, an input, an intake of microbes that are beneficial, they're not pathogens, it will add to the microbial diversity in your gut. And one of the factors that, you know, that has been implicated in the decreasing diversity of the gut in Western populations is exactly that, that we, we, we don't, we're so 
so obsessed with um, hygiene and only eating things that are sterilized and nobody has touched and particularly now <laughs> yeah particularly now they've they've really cut out a lot of those this natural supply of microbes now probiotics are one way of you know introducing one type one taxa mainly lactobacilli and um, um, and bifidobacteria into the gut. So that's the way I see it. And that's why I'd recommend it's probably a better way of um, incorporating a variety of fermented foods into your diet, into your regular diet, because then you, you, like you do exactly what the, the in, in, in history people have done and which has contributed to their internal diversity of their, of their microbiome. Um, there will be in the future, there will definitely be um, engineered microbes, you know, but, uh, genetically engineered microbes that have specific functions. Um, there will be, there is a trend already now to test your stool for <clears throat> characterizing your personal um, microbial composition. And if you have deficiencies in some of these microbes, you know, then there will be a custom um, probiotic cocktail that would be, might be good for you. But again, coming back to the function, um, we're really more interested, you know, do you have a deficiency in a particular pathway <clears throat> that the microbiome produces? And this is an area where people talk about the postbiotics. So focusing on <clears throat> what molecules does your gut microbiome produce? And do you have a deficiency or an excess in one of them? And then you modulate that, that pathway. That's definitely going to be for the you know, intermediate, long-term future, the way it might be going. And in the meantime, um, as I said, I, I recommend, you know, a, <clears throat> a largely plant-based diet with the high, highest variety of plants and fruits. So you uh, nurture more and more different microbes that are required to break down the different types of fiber, the different types of polyphenols, um, if you only eat one vegetable, it's not going to help you much, the diversity of your, of your gut microbiome. But if you, you know, rotate between 50 or 100 and you rotate this throughout the year, depending on the seasons, that's a totally different exposure. And I think it's the best thing you can do in terms of prebiotics or, or, or probiotics. Um, in the future, I think, as I said, there will be if I could, you know, make a prediction, if we identify certain deficiencies or excesses of microbial products in certain diseases, which could be, you know, autism, which could be Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's particularly, I would say, um, then the, in addition to a healthy diet, uh, you might benefit from taking a supplement that, that, addresses that particular abnormality, you know, which, and those we don't really have today. I, I, I don't think, um, if you live in a world, you know, without access to fresh fruit and vegetables, yes, you may consider the supplements, um, just like the multivitamins uh, um, as, as, a, as a substitute for that. Um, but, you know, for people living in, in the developed world, in big cities with access to, to these natural food products, 
I, I don't think at the moment this is really necessary. You know? What about what about the people that just uh, have one vegetable? You know, I, uh, uh, maybe there's someone that's like, oh, okay, but I only like broccoli. I think I always think that the issue is not really like we all know that we should have a, a diverse diet. I think it's probably pretty clear, um, particularly from a lot of the the studies around things like the Mediterranean diet that uh, you know largely um, plant based. We don't want to go too overboard with the the proteins. Uh, the problem is not necessarily what we should be doing, but actually doing it, finding reasons to do it. And one of the things that I do is is typically use the science as a tool for influencing someone because I think it helps us make better quality decisions when, um, particularly with the neuroscience, it, it's very influential because now we can take something that was perhaps quite an abstract concept and make it very concrete and very tangible for someone. Mm-hmm. Do you have any... Do you, have, do you have an approach when it comes to making suggestions for people or helping people to uh, make better decisions around getting a diverse range of foods or maybe adopting more of a plant-based diet? Uh, any things that you do that, that can help influence someone, even though they might already know what to do, but it's actually the, the doing of it? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I mean, the, the, the step one is clearly to provide them with information, with um, evidence-based information um, and and say you know and, and be honest that in, in some areas we don't have the evidence but you know make an intelligent guess which is not informed by commercial interests i, I want to sell you this you know this probiotic and my mix of 10 different strains is the best one and you have it, it but it also costs 500 dollars. and you know so a lot of people very successful with that model um, and I interact with these people, you know, giving talks, and uh, and I'm always shocked, you know, they they write books and uh, they're, they're kind of pseudo scientific, really. And then you go to their website, and you know, you open one tab, the their commercial site, and then you have this whole pharmacy of of um, supplements and probiotics and prebiotics, and they're all praised as if they if there were the evidence. To support that, you know, which is not there. Um, so the first thing is really provide the, uh, the evidence-based information. I think provide them with the model of um, the biological model of the brain-gut microbiome axis, which a lot of people are fascinated by, um, mm. and they know bits and pieces often, but not really the the whole story. Th- then, then the next step is to really emphasize you know, how this system operates, that our microbes, the main influence that we have uh, as adults is, well, there's really two things. I mean, one is diet and the other one is uh, a healthy mind. So clearly chronic stress can do some of the same negative things on, on our microbiome and our gut health as uh, an unhealthy diet does. And a lot of people are not aware of this and particularly the combination of those two. So somebody who is chronically stressed and eats a bad diet, that's kind of the, the double whammy for, for our gut health. Um, and, and that, I mean, that does make sense to them. And then simple concepts, you know, if, um, if you feed, if you eat one vegetable, um, let's say, 
you know, you, you, you will need one or two species of microbes to, to handle that vegetable, break it down into um, short-chain fatty acids and make it absorbable. And, um, but if, if that same individual, you feed them 50 different vegetables and fruits, each of which has a different um, combination of fiber and polyphenols and, and um, oil and fats, um, then you force the system to add additional specialists to it in, in, in the gut. So now all of a sudden you go from your two species to a hundred. And they not only are specialized on what they're doing, but then they also start interacting with each other. So you form, you form an ecosystem, just you know, like you would do in a, in a, in a, in a garden where you do the composting and, and uh, like all of a sudden you get a whole new ecosystem of, of, of organi uh, organisms, all of which do something special, but they interact with each other to form a resilient um, and, um, and stable system. So that it's, it's, it's really like very similar. I think um, I, I often use this metaphor as um, soil health and maintaining soil health and an ideal environment for the growth of, of plants. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very similar concept. And then from that, I go to the fact that, so let's assume you're on an unhealthy diet. You, you know, uh, too much animal products, too much, um, too much animal protein, fat, um, little fiber. Most of the products you eat are refined carbohydrates, not the ones with the, with the high fiber content. Then um, if you think that you can counteract this by taking a supplement uh, that has one strain of a microbe in it, or even if it has 10 strains of microbes in it, um, is, is kind of, or the same thing with a polyphenol, it's, it's kind of ridiculous really, because you're not gonna um, prevent the damage that you do with your, you know, with, with your poor diet with, with one or two pills. It's, it's just so ingrained in, in us in the Western world, um, the, the pharmaceutical model. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry obviously does a phenomenal job in, in ingraining this into our brain with a, you know, watch the evening news like every, every other, sometimes every commercial has to do with a pharmaceutical product that people are just conditioned to think, yeah, for, if I have a, if I have a problem, I have to take a particular pill, you know? And uh, so I, I think, so what I'm trying to do in my teaching and, and interacting with patients to move them away from that pharmaceutical model to an ecological model of um, both understanding their diseases but also treating them. And I would say, you know, um, I would say about 80% of my patients bind to that. Um, now, this may now be a selective group of patients that see me because they've, they've read the book and they liked it and they, they come. So, I'm, I'm not talking to a general audience, you know, these, these are self-selected people. And, um, but I think if it's done well, and to one, you know, one of the reasons that I, I love to do these, these podcasts and these interviews, because I'm really on a mission now to try to get across this an evidence-based um, science and recommendation of the brain-gut microbiome interactions. Um, and there's not that many, unfortunately. The scientists just say amongst each other, 
uh, they usually don't talk to the lay public. That's not like you don't get promoted by, you know, how many uh, lay people you've talked to, but on the papers and the meetings you've spoken to other colleagues. So the scientists are not really trained and prepared. And so the void is filled by, by individuals that are not experts, not specialists, but that they have acquired, they have acquired, you know, they pick and choose what they want to promote to support their model. And so, yeah, for me, it's really important at this stage of my career to, you know, uh, provide that evidence-based information. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the the core pillars of of Brain First. Uh, and again, with the when we had the the pre chat, we were talking about this as well, like like drawing on the evidence, you know, and and not not and of course we need to be able to simplify that so that we can communicate it to people effectively, so they can make better quality decisions and they get the right information, but not oversimplify it and cherry pick and and do all these sorts of things to support our commercial uh, um, um, uh, product or, or service or whatever it is. So it is, you know, it is tempting. So I recently um, had invited a, 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 an expert, a polyphenol expert from, um, from Italy, from the University of Parma. Um, his, his name is Daniele Del Rio, published many papers, considered, a, you know, a international authority on this topic and and we had this conversation he said it would be very easy for him to make tons of money if 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 any of these molecules that he has characterized and studied if he put them into a pill and marketed them with his reputation but he said i just can't do that you know i cannot um i'm i'm a physician i'm honest i i want to increase knowledge and i want to do something good for for people um and I sort of feel the same way. It's I've often been approached by people to you know to become their spokesperson for for their and and those things are extremely lucrative. It's it's hard to turn them down, you know, because I mean you could make a lot of money, but you know it it sort of separates two types of people: the ones that you know want to be honest and and evidence based, and the others that do it purely for the money. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Just to, to go back um, briefly, when we've mentioned a few times um, a largely plant-based diet, uh, and I think regardless of what um, most of the diets that are out there, I think most of them would would probably agree that largely plant-based, regardless of whether you know this one has really high fat and moderate protein or this one has much higher protein and, and uh, moderate or lower fat, I think most of them can probably agree that largely plant-based is incredibly beneficial. Mm-hmm. But that's not to me that that doesn't mean to say that um, you know we're, we're talking about uh, vegan or vegetarian necessarily, right? Can you share some of your thoughts around that? Um, because I, I caught I caught a post of yours. I think it was on Instagram the other day uh, when I think someone might have taken your message to mean. Oh, everyone should be vegan or vegetarian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And you said, well, no, the system is designed to be largely um, omnivorous. Yeah, then this is, um, you know, working on my second book, I've, I've gone through that literature. Um, this clearly seems to be that for vegetarians, there's many health parameters that seem to be better than for people that are not vegetarians. 
if you go to the vegan literature, actually, it's it's not true. In the vegan literature, there's a higher rate of depression, of, of psychological problems. Um, and I, I think in part, so th this could have two reasons. One is that <clears throat> um, if you're more anxious and more introvert, you know, you feel more um, for, for the farm animals and that's a motivation. So you have the, the psychopathology before you, and then make a choice for, for your diet. So this reverse causation. So we don't know, um, but it could also mean that we're just not designed to be 100%, um, you know, feed ourselves from plants. I mean, clearly, why would evolution have to come up with all these elaborate mechanisms to break down animal protein and absorb it? And uh, so, yeah, I would say, um, I, I would certainly not... Um, if you want to make this decision about uh, vegan, I, I think I put this in my answer to this to, to this Instagram person, that, that um, if you have ethical reasons that you just don't want to be involved with anything that kills an animal, yeah, you, you probably should be vegan. You know, it's, it's not, you shouldn't do something against your, your your core beliefs. But if you just do it from a from a health standpoint, um, there's no benefit from doing that uh, and um, yeah I mean there's, there's also this you know there's now this 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 big movement um, starting we, we started with this film game changer it's been really interesting to you know that that film I think did an, had an amazing impact I've I've met so many friends of mine who who changed their lives because of this film it's just actually so if, if that was the intention of the filmmakers, they had a tremendous success. Some of these messages in this film, I don't think were evidence-based. Um, you know, they were exaggerated. But I, I, I have to say, um, overall, with this impact that they basically targeted the male attitude that you're only a real male, you know, if you eat a lot of red meat, uh, Three steaks a day. Yeah, so they, <laughs> they definitely successfully targeted that, you know, and and I, I don't know how many how many people's behavior that they changed with this one movie. That's it's sort of really interesting. I mean, there's a whole whole other dimension to this discussion, which for me is important. There's also this environmental dimension to the diet. So, um, mm. you know the the impact that uh, excessive meat consumption, particularly in North America, what this has had is, so we don't see it, but um, like the cutting down of the, the uh, Amazon forest is largely a consequence of that excessive meat consumption, either to have more space for, for growing soybeans to feed the cattle uh, or to actually, you know, have cattle farm, have huge cattle farms in 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 Brazil, um, and that, as we know, you know, the cutting down the the, the the Amazon has a huge influence on 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 the climate, and uh, and so th th that's another dimension that I think with a continuing increasing population, uh, that this, if 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 everybody stayed on that Western or North American diet. Um, it's just not sustainable. I mean, it's going to cause such collateral damage that 
nobody makes this conclusion um, easily because you don't see that. You know, you go to the to the market and buy a piece of meat. You never think about where this comes from and what the damage is. So for me, that's become another major argument to say, uh, even if you just cut down your meat consumption by 50%, that's already a major you know, step in the right direction. Uh, it, it, and there's people like uh, Walter Willett at uh, Harvard School of Public Health, you know, has written about this, um, that, um, yeah, even even cutting back on 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 some of the meat consumption in the Western world will have this benefit, and it's unsustainable to think that we can go towards you know a population of ten billion, eleven billion people in the world and not have major problems mm. with, with our current you know uh, dietary habits. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm being mindful of the time here, and so we're coming to the end of the show. Uh, do you have any any final thoughts for our listeners? So the final thoughts, um, I would say, you know, the good news is that I think we're seeing a gradual shift in, um, in the consciousness um, of the population about health and what role diet plays in, in, in health. I think that's partially driven, you know, by this continuous increase in our chronic diseases that people don't want to rely on a medical system that many don't even have access to. So they want to take their health into their own hands. And diet is clearly diet, exercise, and, you know, mindfulness, mind-based training are the three things that you can do that all improve that. So um, I think with that comes a trend towards more plant-based diets, um, at least in um, many parts of the world, even in places where you never thought that was possible, like in Argentina. You know, it's uh, um, so th- those are the good things. I, I think um, there's also a growing number of people that realize or subscribe to this concept of the the, the one health concept that. Um, the health of our of ourselves, our gut, our gut microbiome, is integrally related to the health of our plants that we eat, and that in turn on the health of the soil, and the environment, and the planet. Um, I, I think that is is almost like it's almost like a you know a new world religion that could come out of this. That we we see this how much we are interconnected with all the systems um, inside and outside of us and that, uh, you know, we can consciously contribute to the, to the health of these systems. I, I think that's, um, yeah, the way I look at this is I, I think we should look at diet not just in a selfish human way, but we should look at it in a, in a more global way. Because um, many people are being affected, if you think about, I mean, as a reflection of our interconnectedness. So people that uh, climate refugees, I mean, they, they have no clue that partly what's happening to them is related to our dietary habits, you know, and neither is this connection obvious to people in the West, a, a large number. So I, I think this growing awareness of these, this interconnectedness of our planet in terms of diet uh, and and health and well-being uh, to me is really one of the most important overall overarching concepts that that I'm 
<clears throat> you know, basing my philosophy and, and my recommendations on. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is part of the what you're writing about in the next book? Uh, yes. So th- this is going to be, um, so people have to wait for a little while before that comes out. But yeah, this is going to be, so the new book will go from the gut health, um, the influence on the brain, but then to the health of the plants, the soil, and the, and, and the, mm. and the planet. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I mean, one, one comment, you know, one, one last comment. Pure speculation at this point, but since we are in this, in the midst of this COVID nineteen um, pandemic, so there are people that have um, that have speculated, and and I'm going to publish a blog post tomorrow on this that um, our gut microbiome may play some role in in the vulnerability to this virus, um, because as you know, we see this this dramatic range of um, consequences from no consequence at all um, of an infected person to, um, to death, um, which is rare for, for many diseases that you have this. And, you know, there were, were initial, um, so the high risk groups, people identified initially based on, on age and, um, and, and comorbidity What's emerging now, and this I think has to do something um, with our overall health and these chronic diseases. So about 40% of the population in the, in, the, in the US suffer from these chronic diseases related to, ultimately related to, to, to diet. Um, the metabolic syndrome, um, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, uh, and it's, it's people that have these comorbid conditions that seem to be the most vulnerable. Unfortunately, that goes along uh, ethnic lines. So, you know, African-Americans and Latinos um, are um, excessively uh, affected by, by the serious consequences of this virus. And they're exactly the population that have these high comorbidities. And, so my, my theory is that, and this obviously will need to be proven by science in the future, could it be that you know, the, the compromised microbiome that uh, exists in people with these multiple chronic diseases, which has almost become accepted as a, as a norm of older age in our society, um, could it be that this decreased diversity plays a role in the reduced resistance and resilience against something like the COVID-19 infection. So, you know, if if, if that turned out to be correct, then obviously that would be another major argument towards um, looking at our gut health and gut microbial health and the diet as sort of a major determinant over life and death, really. Emeryn, thank you very much for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure and, uh, and great to talk to you again. Anytime. I really enjoyed talking to you. So that's it for this episode. If you want to support the show, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, drop a five-star review, and of course, you can connect with me on social with the links in the description. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you soon.